Hello, Matthew Grant here. Wherever you are in the world, I'm sure you're watching closely the unfolding news about COVID-19 coronavirus. With the news this week that the WHO has classified this as a pandemic, we're bringing you a change from our usual podcast interview. Late last week, I spoke to five people with expertise in medicine, insurance, modelling, supply chain and analytics. And you're about to hear what the pandemic is likely to mean for the insurance industry, the current state of modelling pandemics and their impact and what types of analytics are now available with new AI tools and access to data. At times like this, it can be hard to get a balanced view of the risks and potential outcomes. At the time of recording this, none of us, of course, know exactly how this is going to play out, but what follows should help you understand some of the context and the variables. By the time you are listening to this recording, Lloyds of London will have closed for one day on Friday to test its emergency protocols and told nearly 50,000 people for the first time in the market's history they can no longer agree deals face-to-face for that day. Pandemics affect insurance in a number of different ways, from the direct costs of claims from life insurance, event cancellation and travel insurance to the enormous ripples in the financial equity markets, drops in oil price and disruption to supply chains and movement of people. Unfortunately, we are also going to find out that insurance may not offer as much protection as people had expected. And this pandemic may fundamentally change the nature of the role of insurance itself. But before we investigate the impact on insurance, I wanted to get an opinion on the nature of COVID-19 from a medical expert. Dr. Chris Martin was a practicing GP up until 2017, but he also spent four years working as part of a team on mortality modelling for the insurance, pensions and finance industry. So he brings a unique perspective. I asked Chris about how COVID-19 compares to other major viruses. The COVID-19 pandemic is a coronavirus similar to MERS and SARS. However, MERS uh, has a a much higher mortality rate of about a third of people, known cases, die of that. SARS in 2003 had about 10% mortality, and it looks like the mortality of COVID-19 is much lower than that. Um, probably you know, 1% or even lower, not as high as the 1918 H1N1 uh, pandemic where the mortality rate was, was more like 3%. The, 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 the difference uh, with, with, with the COVID-19 is that it is very infectious and it's uncontrolled and essentially uh, there's no herd immunity. So unlike SARS, unlike MERS, uh, you know, unlike seasonal flu, they're going to be extremely large uh, numbers of, of cases over the next uh, 18 months to two years. I asked Chris what he meant by the term herd immunity. With COVID-19, we just have no immunity uh, in, in the world population. So as far as we know, everyone is vulnerable to this, uh, you know, rather than a minority of people who would be vulnerable to it with seasonal influenza. I was also curious whether once people had been infected and survived, then whether they would be immune from future infection. This is a new virus, so we don't yet know all the details like that about it. However, with other coronaviruses, it looks like we do get long-standing I- immunity. Coronavirus is an RNA virus, which means it does mutate relatively quickly. And so over the years, it may mutate sufficiently that the existing immunity is reduced. 
also, as the years go by, people's immunity may wane. Some degree of immunity may be lifelong. It can decay over the years, so it's quite possible that a proportion of people would become vulnerable to it again after an interval. But we're talking about years. And what about the age profile of people infected and the severity of the impact? It's probably everybody that, that gets it of all ages equally. However, in younger people, it seems a relatively mild disease. In some people, it just seems like a cold. In many, it's just like a bad dose of the flu. In about 15, 20% of people, it is really severe to the degree of requiring hospitalisation and, and oxygen. About 5% of the cases that we know about are so severe that they need ventilating and intensive care. And this does seem to be focused on the older age groups. For many people, you know, particularly young people, it just seems like a cold. You know, many just will not realise they've, they've had it. Over 60, taking that entire age group, it's probably about 5%. And it, and it increases with age. So that over 80, it's about 15% of known cases uh, that die. Probably the thing to stress here is that we probably only know a fraction of true cases and you know some estimates are as high as you know 10 times uh, the ones that we know about and of course that would mean that the death rate is proportionately lower so when we say 15% of cases that we know about it may mean that the true death rate would be more like one and a half percent. So how do we quantify the impacts upon insurance? Despite all the thousands of startups and five years into the adoption of the term InsurTech, it's hard to find those companies that have selected pandemic as an area of focus. Companies such as RMS have been modelling the insurance implications of pandemics for almost a decade, but up until now, these have mostly focused on the insurance impacts from loss of life rather than across the full range of insurance losses. As individuals, we tend not to think too much about risk in our day-to-day -day lives unless we've been personally affected by an accident or a loss. All regulation requires us to measure it or insurance against it. The situation we are now in is unusual for most of us. Major coverage in the news, government warnings and the potential for us and our families to be directly impacted. The growth in infection rates and loss of life from the pandemic is concerning, both from a personal and a business perspective. But in all crises there are opportunities. In the last few years, insurance has demonstrated the power that comes from bringing together people passionate about innovation with access to new tools, data and analytics from across multiple industries. Insurance has a role and arguably a responsibility to be there to protect and help with the recovery from loss. Robert Muir Wood is a Chief Research Officer at RMS. RMS has been providing catastrophe models to insurers for almost 30 years for both natural disasters such as hurricanes and man-made losses such as terrorism and pandemics. Robert has led or consulted on the development of many of the RMS catastrophe models over the, that time. I worked with Robert for many years. He has always been able to find new information and bring a fresh perspective and a balanced view to the assessment of all types of risks, those around us today and what we may face in the future. This is how Robert thinks about the current situation in the context of other pandemics that RMS has modelled. This really is the one in a hundred year event. I mean, the, the, the event which we've been thinking about and modelling and it has been clear really all the way back to late January that the, the rate of, of spread, the, this geometric progression, the exponential way in which you could get the growth in the number of cases every doubling every three days and the number of fatalities doubling every three days. 
this really is a pandemic. When you talk about that, there's a rate of growth. Does that mean that you can therefore extrapolate out and expect it to continue to grow? Or is there still some, well, as a large degree of uncertainty about what the continual growth would be, which is dependent on other factors such as the time of year and obviously preventative measures? It'll continue to grow um, unless it runs out of people to infect. And it, you know, it can run out of people to infect if people are isolating. So there are ways of intervening, but if you don't intervene, it'll keep, and, and if, if there's a large enough population, it'll keep exponentially expanding. That is something which we're extremely unused to. I was trying to think of other, other situations where we experience this sort of steep geometric uh, growth and the you know, Unless you live through hyperinflation in Zimbabwe or Venezuela, when, when you, you will know what that means. It's just something we have almost no experience of. It's fortunate that it doesn't have higher rates of mortality. It could have done. It could have had them, you know, the rates of mortality of SARS or MERS, this Middle Eastern respiratory syndrome, which is a lot higher. And it, and it could in particular, it could have had higher mortality rates among children, which would have made it a much more terrifying prospect than it actually is. It seems to have um, mortality rates which have, are very proportionate with age. There's something like a factor of 75 increase in risk of an 80-year-old as compared with a 30-year-old, for example. The significance of the impact on insurance is still unclear, but I asked Robert what he was hearing from RMS clients and his own research. The one where the loss is likely to be the most severe in, in relation to the size of the market is around contingency offering um, event cancellation covers. I mean, it's every sporting event, musical event, celebration event, wedding, all the public gatherings have the potential to be to be cancelled and a significant number of them have the potential to be insured. Um, there may be clauses in contracts uh, saying that they would not pay out under conditions of a pandemic or an epidemic, and it's hard to therefore generalise. We know the Tokyo Olympics is, there's an, is an anticipated insured value of around $2 billion. So that is the area which I think you know, if, if, of the sector of the market which is likely to have the most extreme losses relative to the size of the market. I mean, there are a whole range of other coverages. Travel insurance is likely to be quite manageable because of the time of year. As countries become out of bounds, the coverage may be excluded. So one doesn't expect that to be such a problem. Trade credit insurance, which um, responds to a company organization's bankruptcy or insolvency risk, there will undoubtedly be, be a rise in claims. And Business interruption covers, um, obviously, they're mostly damage-related. There is, there is no damage here, but there are non-damage extensions. There'll, there'll be questions about how notifiable diseases are included in the coverage, um, denial of access, loss of attraction. So it's going to come down to the wording in individual contracts where there's exposure. And, I mean, another area is clearly going to be long-tail liability claims at um, some point in the future. There, there are evidently going to be claims against cruise liner operators and hotel owners and, and so on. And many private schools in the US have cancelled their trips or even closed for fear of the litigation should a, a pupil become infected. So the fear of litigation is, is already driving action as well as actually what the cost of that litigation is likely to be long-term. We've seen over the years with all sorts of different types of catastrophe losses that you get 
these sort of concentrations of loss from things that were completely unexpected or uh, are sort of vulnerabilities are revealed that weren't seen before. Is there anything you're seeing that you, you know, is, is particularly either surprising or notable that's going to have a disproportionate loss that might have been expected? I think it's this uh, contingency market is sort of the area you'd identify because clearly in coming up with with their sort of PML events, they may have thought what would happen if you had an impact of closing all activities in a single country. But this is an event which is likely over quite a long period of time and you know, continuing into the future is likely to cause cancellations in, in almost every country in the world. So I, I don't know if that was an event that was being planned for. Sam Casey is a journalist from Insurance Insider, which has one of the best network of contacts in the insurance industry. Sam agrees that contingency cover looks like it is going to be one of the worsted areas of insurance, and he provides some perspective on that coverage. The biggest uh, potential sources of loss from this event is likely to fall in the contingency market, uh, which is one of the markets which I cover here at the Insider. So that's event cancellations, uh, which, you know, throughout the mainstream, there's been a, a space of them, uh, music festivals, conferences. A lot of those are insured, but uh, within that market, there is a specific exclusion for pandemic uh, cover uh, communicable diseases, which is not in all cases brought back. Uh, so there is a potential for a, a serious number of losses, but uh, it also potentially could uh, prompt that market maybe to reassess the kind of cover it offers at the moment, certainly any new contracts that are going through. It's our understanding that the coronavirus is being uh, specifically excluded from any potential event cancellation cover, and that's really becoming a market-wide thing. The line's a bit choppy there, but you may have heard Sam refer to the concept of bought back. I asked him what he meant. In a typical insurance contract, especially in the London market, there'll be a list of exclusions. So those are circumstances in which there will not be an insurance payout if, uh, in those scenarios. And one of those typically used in the uh, event cancellation market is for communicable diseases. So if, uh, if an event is cancelled due to uh, a situation like we're seeing at the moment with the coronavirus, there would not typically be an insurance payout. But when you're negotiating these contracts, there is the option to pay an additional premium and to buy that additional cover, um, which has been seen uh, in the past. Uh, that market's got experience of things like the swine flu epidemic and SARS. So it's, it's an established practice. Um, and what's interesting about that exclusion is that it depends a lot on, even if you've bought it back, it depends a lot on the circumstances in which the event is cancelled. Uh, there needs to be typically some sort of decree, be it from a government or the World Health Organization's uh, cancelling large gatherings, which some countries now have done. But if you were to cancel, say, a conference because you were worried there wouldn't be enough people turning up, but uh, legally it was all acceptable to go ahead, then it's pretty unlikely that it seems that the contract would pay out in that situation. Given the wide range of contracts, covers and appetite for risk, it looks as though the losses could impact individual insurance companies in very different ways. I asked Sam what he was seeing in the market. In terms of the insured losses, I think there does appear to be a reasonable amount of confidence in the market. Uh, certainly in the event cancellation space, there were some analysts who suggested that the losses could be uh, significant hits on overall insurance companies' books and the several of the big listed insurers in London, Beasley and Hiscox, put out notes saying that they uh, were not worried about the extent of their exposure 
both because of their reinsurance cover uh, and also the fact that these uh, exclusions weren't brought back typically. So in, in terms of insurers' losses, people um, don't seem to be perhaps as concerned uh, as you might expect, but there's obviously huge uh, issues about potential disruption and also hits on the on balance sheets and investments from the, the general struggles of uh, you know, the FTSE and the Dow Jones, etc. The last point about insurance balance sheets is worth noting. Mostly we think about insurers being impacted by losses from the claims they are paying. But of course, all insurers rely heavily on investment income and there are strict requirements for the capital they hold related to what they're underwriting, something that will be impacted by a downturn in the equity markets. Just before I was speaking to Sam last Thursday, news came through that Lloyds would be closing. This could be a good test of the market's ability to move away from face-to-face placement and properly test the new technology it is starting to use, such as the London market PPL system. A number of insurers actually today, uh, the day before the was closing, have been running uh, sort of dry run test days uh, with all their employees, or the majority, working from home uh, to see how they can cope. I actually interviewed uh, Ronak Maziada, who is the chairman of PPL, the main placing system used in the Lloyd's market this morning. And he said that it was going to be, yeah, a big test of, of that system and how readily people had adopted it. But also, if this had happened five years ago when the market was still trading with emails and on paper, then it would have been much harder for it to cope. So um, definitely the developments in technology which have been seen only recently uh, have offered a real opportunity to, as much as is possible, have a business-as-usual scenario going forwards. As we've heard, the biggest potential event cancellation is the Olympics. What has Sam heard in the market? I think there's huge concern in the market about the potential for the Olympics to be cancelled. Um, certain underwriters have told me that you know it could be uh, almost catastrophic for that particular segment of business. It's along with the Football World Cup. It's one of by far the largest contracts out there in the market. It doesn't cover merely the organising committee or the Olympics, but there will be contracts out there for broadcasters, for caterers, for all sorts of people involved in the, in that line of business. And a lot of them do have this pandemic exclusion cover. So uh, at the moment, the Olympic Committee is certainly adamant that it's going to press ahead. I believe they actually did the Olympic torch today. But it's of all the events which could be cancelled, that would by far be the biggest insurance hit. If contingency is one of the biggest direct losses, disruption to supply chains is already starting to have a major economic impact and has consequences for insurance. Nick Wildgoose was formerly global supply chain product leader at Zurich Insurance and today provides consulting to global companies, helping them to manage their supply chain risk. How does Nick assess the situation? Well, I think, Matthew, they're unprecedented in a way. I, I was around and experienced the 2011 issues with the Thailand floods and the Japanese tsunami, which caused around 300 billion pounds worth of impact to the world economy. But I think coronavirus is going to be even bigger and it just um, brings out further that the interconnectedness of the, the global supply chains. Clearly, you've had the impact of many uh, shutdowns in China, for example, and just to illustrate how much we depend on China, just to pick out one statistic there, 
you know, the American economy um, is taking in over 35% of its import of intermediate products is from China. Uh, and at a very kind of domestic level in the UK, you know, shortages on retail shelves. Now, I think some of those will be overcome in the short term, but the interconnections in the more sophisticated technology products and relevant logistics chains, I'm afraid, are going to impact through for the next two or three months, even if we start to hopefully see some abatement, if you like, in the coronavirus itself. And where, where do you see the sort of most significant choke points or dependencies out there that people might not be, be thinking about that you know, have a significant impact on shutting down production or not giving people access to you know, what they expect to normally be able to get? Uh, well, the, a worrying thing I've talked about for 10 years now is from a pharmaceutical, you know, given this is a medical emergency and medical equipment point of view, that's clearly a worry. Ch China accounts for a significant proportion. I've seen figures as high as 90%, even if it's a bit lower than that, of active pharmaceutical ingredient production. So in other words, the base of pharmacy, you know, pharmaceuticals, be they paracetamol or more sophisticated products. So a huge dependency on China. And I believe, for example, around face masks, we've already seen issues in that, they, again, they were responsible for around about 50% of the production of those, as some stats I've seen. And even if they're slightly out, it just shows your dependency. And, and there's, by the way, the second largest producer of active pharmaceutical ingredients is India. Um, and they recently announced an embargo on, and a number of other countries are, on medical type products. In a lot of cases, losses will be testing insurance contracts and clauses that have never been used before. In addition to the spread of the disease, estimating the insured loss and the impact on the insurers themselves will be, continue to be a problem for months ahead and is sure to keep the lawyers busy for many years beyond that. With all the discussion about innovation and use of data, new tools and analytics etc. to help insurers price and manage risk, you might be wondering now what is available to help insurers and clients and what opportunities there may be into the future for companies, new and old, to get involved in this space. I asked Robert what kind of tools the insurance industry had today to assess the risk. RMS has been modelling pandemics for uh, almost 10 years now. I mean, like a lot of risk, people sort of didn't really pay a lot of attention to it. Regulation wasn't that stringent. Uh, well, you know, how, how good is the modelling now in terms of the impact on, on the insurance industry? Why do you sort of characterise it relative to some other types of models that people are familiar with? Well, I think, I mean, it, there has been a focus on life and health impacts of pandemics. And, you know, there was a, a very large range of potential pandemics in terms of, of how infectious they were as to what, what the fatality rates were. So there's been more, more focus on looking at the, the variety of, of pandemic types in terms of, of their consequences and actually probably looking at all the economic sectors and how they could be um, affected by a pandemic so i mean it's you know that is um that is something we've talked about uh, in in modeling we, we've actually identified those those areas you know, like airlines or travel companies which are or cinema operators who are going to be most exposed if if people uh, self-isolate so we, we've always um talked through that but i mean i think there's probably more modeling work to do on actually the the 
progress of a pandemic through time and actually in, in more detail how these individual sectors are going to be impacted. And what are some of the new challenges emerging for modelling? The actual experience of, of going through the expansion through time, I mean, is, is something which I, I think the industry probably has not been as focused on as to, you know, this doesn't all, all happen at the start. It actually spreads through time. And there, you know, the, in particular, we have learnt the degree to which a government can actually get on top of the situation. I mean, that is really something completely new. And it's, it's, it's um, you know, there have been attempts at quarantine in the past, um, which we can, we can learn from and which have been successful. I mean, there's, there's islands um, in the Pacific which actually did impose quarantine in the Spanish flu outbreak of 1918 and 1919 and managed to keep clear of it. So you know, we, we, we have seen isolated examples of this. I think what China has done and what Italy is trying to do is kind of novel and is something that uh, probably needs to be included in the modelling in more detail going forward. Dr. Chris Martin is also familiar with models for insurance and the medical world. I asked him about how he saw the current state. The newer area is, is what you might refer to as agent-based modelling, uh, where you literally model individuals or small collections of, of people as um, objects that or agents that can interact with other agents. Uh, and this that 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 um, feature of agent-based models, where they one object or one agent can interact with another, obviously lends itself to infectious disease modelling. The, the difficulty with agent-based models of infectious disease of countries, for example, is they're extremely demanding of, of computing power. But as as the computing power gets uh, more available and and cheaper, um, increasingly people are using that because you can do far more sophisticated uh, scenarios around intervention, for example. And back to Nick on supply chain modelling. What is the state of modelling supply chain risk for insurers and companies? I'd approach that question, Matthew, in it's saying it's very important to understand where your supply chain is at the moment. You know, where is it located? Because we could talk a lot of just about coronavirus, but bear in mind there's a lot of other on, ongoing risks to your supply chain through geopolitical or NATCAD events, for example. And what I've seen and been advocating over 10 years now is, you know, the only way you can scale up, even, even if you only have, let's say, 100 strategic suppliers around the world um, with locations, you know, how do you monitor those without technology and without the relevant data? So the coronavirus has further illustrated that those companies that have invested and it's not a huge amount in the technology and the data feeds to um, be able to understand where their key suppliers are as well as understanding what they produce for them in that sense and, and where they ship through are at a tremendous advantage over those companies that haven't done that and the more advanced ones by the way have not done not just their first tier suppliers but second and third tier suppliers so those the key suppliers to them so that they can immediately you know for, for example as soon as they were detecting that, that China was shutting down in various ways right back in early January through to just coming into the Chinese New Year they could begin to assess the potential impact 
and start to take mitigation action so they could secure inventory or look to ship stuff out from areas of concern. Nick's last point is particularly interesting and a reminder that analytics are only as good as the actions that are taken with the information they reveal. The companies that were taking care to analyse their supply chain earlier this year would have been able to secure stock in order to keep manufacturing and trading. For others, it may be too late. Nick goes on to talk about some specific tools and approaches. Those companies who've um, already invested in the technology, like, say, Resilient 360 or something like that, a software product that has allowed them to map out those key locations and the products. And by the way, I'd, I'd start, some people say, oh, we've got... 10,000 suppliers, Nick, you know, how can we possibly map all those? I'd say, well, it's a journey of improvement. So why the way to focus, and this brings a kind of insurance slant on it, is what are your most valuable products from a profit point of view? Substitute for that can be the highest revenue, but uh, depends better to look at profit impact. And that might only involve, say, your top 50 suppliers and start there and work on that journey to map them out, understand the products, and even maybe the subcomponents that go into them, and therefore protect your balance sheet. Given Nick's experience of working for an insurer, I asked him what he thought the insurance impacts would be for supply chain. Unfortunately, I think a number of companies will likely be somewhat disappointed. Many of the insurance coverages out there, the standard covers, are reliant on some kind of physical damage event. So under a property scheme and your CBI or your supplier stroke customer extension requires in many, nearly all cases really, a physical damage to the supplier factory or facility. And equally, for example, under construction risks, um, constructional risks or um, that kind of product, again, you have to have some kind of damage event and clearly Um, The coronavirus doesn't fit into that area. And Nick reminds us once again that the corporate world is moving from tangible assets to intangible assets and is looking to insurers to be there to protect them. For many companies, you know, like in the technology field, where the value they exist is an intangible value. You know, how is the insurance sector going to help them? And many clients are expecting the insurance sector to help them manage risk. And this is one of the significant risk areas for these companies, as I say, both from a value flow and from a brand value perspective. And so they should be looking increasingly to support the clients in using technology, insurance technology, that can help them understand this. And then by having that data available to underwriters to selectively extend their coverages in a sensible way that supports their customers going forward. Finally, Nick identifies other aspects of this supply chain disruption that could cause significant problems for companies. You're going to have two interesting challenges, and I may bring these up very briefly. One is, you know, the cash flow implications could actually um, drive companies out of business. In fact, um, unfortunately, I think there will be a number. This will kind of be the last straw, if you like. But there's an interesting corollary to that that not many people think about. That, you know, you may say there's, um, I don't know, two key suppliers in the UK of a particular component and one goes bust as a result of coronavirus. Then the second one in taking on that volume of work uh, may also face financial difficulties um, because of the challenges of, you know, 
increasing its turnover, let's say, by 40% and the impact that has on working capital and overtrading. So in other words, it puts an extreme cash challenge on their cash flow as well because they're likely, in most cases, to be waiting to collect the debts while they have to pay their own suppliers. So financial strain comes from both directions. Nick was talking about data there. Both Chris and Robin mentioned that earlier. Alex Esau is an impact strategist at Spark Beyond, a young AI company that is already making an impact in different markets, including insurance. They've recently been looking at the data around pandemic and advising the governments of one of the countries most affected by the virus. We've been approached by some of the senior officials, government officials of Italy. Um, in fact, one of the four hotspots uh, of COVID outbreak uh, to really kind of help uh, them manage the COVID risk. So we are working with them uh, using our platform to help them make faster, better, quicker decisions uh, because we understand that making quick, critical this quick decisions is very critical uh, from the government point of view to manage this outbreak. One of the major areas they are looking at is social distancing, but as you know, there's a cost element uh, associated with it. So we are helping them to uh, kind of find out what is the best way to take these different actions, what are the best areas uh, uh, that they can take action with, and trying to help identify the emerging risks uh, in those areas. So we kind of provide a kind of heat map of the different emerging risks so that they can proactively take different actions. Because I understand that with AI, one of the critical areas is explainability and it sort of differentiates an organization that can perform analytics and come up with some results. But I think from what you're talking about, the critical part for this, as you help the Italian government, is actually being able to explain what the lessons are or what you're learning coming out of the analytics. Exactly. I mean, um, it's the insight that generated is very little help if you can't explain why uh, the underlying reasons or factors behind it. So at Spark Beyond, we really try to give you the reasons and explainability behind all these insights. Uh, so we're helping them, uh, whatever insights is being generated, there's underlying reasons is also being shared with them so they can uh, take some really strategic business decisions and, and oh, sorry, government decisions. And presumably speed is really important to them. So you know, how does that influence what you're able to do versus other ways they might try to understand the situation? Yeah, so the way our platform works is it works at a very high velocity. So we generate around 4 million hypotheses per minute. Uh, that's crunching both public data and, and the organizational data. So we, we generate millions and millions of hypotheses. And then it also kind of does this curation exercise and gives you the top actual insights for them to kind of ingest and take operationalize it, basically. Catastrophe bonds have been widely used for offering alternative reinsurance cover for natural perils, with over $100 billion of protection in place. In the last few years, we've also heard about catastrophe bonds being developed for cyber and pandemic. These offer an innovative alternative to traditional reinsurance products, but also require sophisticated modelling and access to a lot of data, often tapping into companies and organisations that otherwise wouldn't have expected to have a role in insurance. I asked Robert his opinion on the role of catastrophe bonds for pandemics and how these might be performing. There is a, uh, a bond called the Pandemic Emergency Financing Facility, which was, which was issued by the World Bank in 2017, and for which they raised 320 million of capital, and um, which, which is quite complicated as to how it works. But there are two tranches, Class A and Class B notes, and um, the higher risk Class B notes have a value of 95 million. And there's, I mean, as I say, the, the, the contract wording is complicated. It involves the level of 
fatalities in two countries at least um, and the the second class a notes have even more complicated triggers and it's there's an 84 day period since the beginning of the outbreak before a payout can be determined so we i mean the market is is fairly confident that the higher risk class b notes for 95 million are going to be triggered and there and you know there's a secondary market for the class a notes this is the first insight as to as to how a pandemic bond like this could work i think that they'll be very much sort of going back to the drawing board around future bonds of this kind i think the you know, this was intended for for a an ebola like outbreak where when it was being set up it was not i don't think there was much thought given to this being the kind of outbreak that we've actually got going back to chris martin again i asked him how the current situation in the uk compared with what is happening elsewhere if you compare what's happening elsewhere in the world, and in particular Italy, is, is that a very different situation than what we should expect to see in the UK, or are we going to see something fairly similar? Um, well, we're, if you look at the trajectory of, of the growth in cases across uh, different European countries, um, they are all remarkably similar. Um, Italy is the leader of the, the pack in terms of time. Um, we're about 13, 14 days uh, behind Italy, uh, France and Germany uh, about a, a week. Um, so essentially what we're seeing in Italy, we should uh, expect to see here in about two weeks' time. And finally for Chris, given all the different information that exists, what did he see as some of the most reliable sources of information? The World Health Organization do put out brief, um, special briefing reports on a daily basis. These are fairly carefully compiled, which does mean that they're, they're a kind of a day behind, uh, and which given the rate of growth of, of the problem, it, it, it can be an issue with the, with the modeling. But there are a number of different open source data collection projects. Uh, the John Hopkins University run a dashboard. We've covered a lot here and I'm grateful to all our guests that took time out during a very busy period to give their perspectives. During these difficult times we will be continuing to support the members of Instec London and others by sharing our views and experience on the people making a difference in insurance and analytics and continuing to connect people from around the world. We're expecting to be digging deeper into many of these themes over the next few weeks and if you'd like to feature in our future events or on this podcast please let me know wherever you are in the world and of course you can find out what we're up to and what we've been doing at www.instec.london. <laughs>